All right, you guys can turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're continuing our study this morning. So this week I got to go to Atlanta for the, the annual convention of the Evangelical Theological Society, and it's, it's this gathering where they bring together all the most eminent uh, seminary professors and theologians, uh, of which I am not one. I just get to go and listen to these men and women present their latest research in biblical studies and systematic theology and linguistics and archaeology and history and all these fascinating subjects for three days. They just, they read their papers, their research, and I know for a lot of you that doesn't sound fun, but for me it was awesome. It was like highlight of the year. I love it. Uh, and so I I get to the the meeting in Atlanta and I look over the program and I see that there's a lecture coming up by a guy named Millard Erickson, who I totally respect. I think this theologian guy is just awesome. He's one of the preeminent theologians in North America. He wrote this huge tome of a book called Systematic Theology or Christian Theology. It's a systematic theology and I really respect the guy. I really like what he's done and I've heard him lecture before. He's brilliant. Uh, He's been serving the Lord in, in amazing ways for years and years. And He was presenting this lecture on justification by faith for infants. And, and I saw that and I thought, well, that's a good topic to go to because first of all, that's a, a theologically difficult subject, but it's also pastorally challenging. How do you comfort a family who just lost a baby? I want to go hear what this brilliant guy has to say about that. So I go to his lecture and, and just as I expected, it's brilliant. Like it's way over my head. It's incredible stuff. But what really touched me in his lecture, what really stands out to me was not the brilliance of his argument or the clarity of his thought. It was his emotion. He's like this 70-something-year-old, world-renowned theologian. He's presenting his paper, and he's choking up on tears. Well, it turns out that last year, his eight-month-old grandbaby died. So this isn't just some like, theological exercise for him. This is incredibly personal. And as I listened to him articulate these theological thoughts about his own life and the loss of his own grandbaby, it reminded me that no matter how smart and no matter how biblically acute you get and no matter how mature and godly and influential, no one can escape the suffering of this life. Everyone has been touched by suffering and pain. You, You either will be touched by it or you already have. No one can escape the suffering of this life. Here's one of the most eminent theologians in the whole world, and even he experiences the pain and suffering of life. It's unavoidable. It's inescapable. We live in a fallen world. All of us will suffer. That's a subject that Peter keeps coming back to. We've talked about it multiple times as we've gone through 1 Peter. It's so significant because all of us experience it. It's one of the greatest trials we face in life. So Peter keeps coming back to the subject of suffering, and he's going to do it one more time in our passage this morning. One final review of the subject of suffering. Look with me, starting in chapter 4, verse 12. Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name." For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right." 
Now, in this passage, Peter talks about a particular type of undeserved suffering, persecution, suffering because of your allegiance to Jesus Christ. You've chosen to follow Jesus, and as a result, you're persecuted by the world. What do you do in the midst of that persecution? That's the focus of the passage. Peter is challenging his audience about how to respond rightly to persecution. Now, the the things he tells them, he's going to give them three steps to respond rightly to persecution. None of those steps are new to us. We've seen Peter talk about them throughout 1 Peter, so we're going to review them in brief this morning. How do you respond to persecution? When people ridicule you for your faith, when they persecute you because of your allegiance to Jesus Christ, how do you respond well to that persecution? Well, the first step that Peter lays out for us is he challenges us in the midst of persecution, be joyful, don't be surprised. Look back at verse 12. Peter starts, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. When you are persecuted for your faith, don't be surprised. Don't be shocked by that. Remember, we follow a guy who was crucified by the leaders of this world. So probably we're going to experience some some persecution too. If our teacher, if our master was persecuted, then we will be as well. Jesus warned us about that. He said in John 15, remember the word which I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. The lot in life of those who choose to follow Jesus Christ is persecution. We will be ridiculed. We will be made fun of by this world. Well, we will be given a hard time because the world rejected Christ first, so they will reject us. Paul sums that up, 2 Timothy 3. He says, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you decide to follow Jesus Christ, if you're here this morning and you have chosen to be a follower of Jesus Christ, expect that at some point in your life, probably many points in your lives, you will pay a price for your commitment to Christ. You will be persecuted in some way by this world because that is the lot of all followers of Jesus Christ. So when persecution comes, don't be surprised by it. Don't be shocked by it. Instead, rejoice. That's Peter's command. Rejoice even in the midst of persecution. Now, that's not the first time we've seen that command. Leave your finger in chapter 4 and look back at chapter 1, verse 6. Chapter 1, verse 6, Peter says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. As we looked at chapter 1, verse 6, we, we spent some time on this command, on this word rejoice, and we defined rejoice this way. To rejoice means that you regard yourself as blessed. To rejoice means that you you thank God for your lot in life. Even if your lot includes suffering, even if it includes persecution, you choose to thank God for your life. You choose to view yourself as a blessed person. Now, when we were going and studying this word rejoice, we clarified a couple things about rejoicing. First of all, to rejoice is a choice, not an emotion or a feeling. When Peter says rejoice in the midst of suffering, he knows that we're not going to feel happy. When you're persecuted, when you suffer, you don't feel happy. If you felt happy in the midst of pain, that would be masochism. You don't don't feel happy. You, You have to choose to be joyful. That was really the second clarification. How you actually feel, according to verse six, is distressed. In the midst of persecution, in the midst of suffering, you feel distressed. You feel grief. You feel pain. 
And yet in the midst of that pain, you choose to thank God. You choose to look at yourself as a blessed person. You choose to say to God, God, I know I'm in the midst of pain, but I choose to believe that I am blessed in your sight. That's the example of Jesus Christ. Think back to the Garden of Gethsemane. The night before Jesus died, Jesus goes before the Father in prayer and he prays to the Father about his coming crucifixion the next day. And if you recall, Jesus isn't happy about his suffering. He's not happy and excited about going to the cross. No, he's grieving, he's sorrowful, he's weeping before the Father. And yet in the midst of that, he chooses joy. He chooses to say, Father, your will be done. I believe I am blessed. I believe my life is good, even in the midst of pain. So response number one to persecution Choose to be joyful. Response number two that Peter gives us, be bold, not ashamed. Look at verse 16. Peter says, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. Now that that word Christian, that's interesting here. It only appears three times in scripture. The, The word Christian, or literally you could translate it, I guess, follower of Christ or little Christ. It's actually an invented word. They they made it up to refer to those who follow Jesus. And and actually the ones who invented this word weren't Christians. Wasn't the followers of Jesus who invented this word. It was actually their persecutors. Those who, who hated Christians, they invented this word Christian as a, as a slur, as a, as a put down. It was a pejorative term. It was like a racial slur. If you wanted to make fun of someone in the ancient world, you called them a Christian. It was a shameful thing to be identified as a Christian. That title bore shame in your community. It meant that you were going to be ostracized. It meant that you were going to be cut off from your friends and your family. You were going to lose social status because you have been identified by the community as a Christian. And Peter challenges his audience, when they call you a Christian, when they put you down, when they make fun of you by attaching this name to you, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed to be called a Christian. And it's, it's really interesting when we look at church history, when we look at what happened right after Peter wrote this letter, his audience apparently followed his advice. Actually, rather than being ashamed of being called a Christian, they actually took that word and they turned it into a badge of honor for themselves. They started calling each other Christians. They said, if you're going to put us down, we're just going to take that and we're going to use that word for ourselves because we like to be associated with Jesus Christ. Peter loves that. He's challenging them. When when they put you down as a Christian, use that as as a door to present the gospel. When they call you a Christian, say, yeah, I am. And let me tell you why. Let me tell you why your insult is actually a badge of honor to me because of this guy named Jesus, named Christ. Let me tell you what he did. Peter's challenging them. When people ridicule you for your faith, don't be ashamed to be a follower of Christ. Use their ridicule as an opportunity to be, to be bold for Jesus, to present why you're willing to suffer shame for the sake of Jesus Christ, why he's worth it. So that's the second response when we're persecuted. Be bold for your faith. Don't be ashamed. Third response, verse 19, trust and obey. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Peter knows us well. Uh, Peter knows that when we, when we suffer for our faith, actually when we suffer in any re- way, in any reason in life, we are tempted towards, towards a couple sins. First of all, we're tempted to doubt God. We're tempted to become bitter towards God when we suffer. When we're in pain, we we call out to God, how can you be good? How can you do this to me? He knows it will be tempted towards doubt and bitterness. He knows it will also be tempted towards sin. I've talked to and counseled a lot of believers over the years, and I've seen this common pattern that, that life gets hard and they use the hardness of life as an excuse for sin. 
If life is gonna be this hard, then surely I deserve to give in to this sin. I deserve to give in to anything that makes me happy. Peter knows that that's how Satan's gonna tempt us. He's gonna tempt pain to become an opportunity for doubt or for sin, and he challenges us. No, in the midst of your pain, continue to trust and obey God. Continue to trust. Continue to believe that God loves you, that he wants what's best for you, that he is good, that he is powerful, that he is wise, and continue to obey if you, if you don't want your suffering to get worse, don't add sin to it. Don't give in to sin. That will only make things worse. Continue to trust and obey God, even in the midst of suffering. Well, I didn't want to spend much time here because we've seen all of these commands before in 1 Peter. When we suffer for our faith, we need to rejoice. We need to be bold in our witness, and we need to continue to trust and obey. But now I want to turn to the rest of the passage because Peter doesn't just provide commands to them in this passage. He also provides motivation. He knows that it is incredibly difficult to respond well to suffering. He knows it's incredibly hard to follow God in the midst of pain. And so he provides for us uh, four points of motivation, four things that tell us why it's worth suffering well, why it's worth rejoicing in the midst of our suffering, why it's worth trusting and obeying God in the midst of suffering. And these four things that Peter tells us, they are not just true of the suffering of persecution. They're true of any undeserved suffering. If you suffer pain simply because you live in a fallen world, these things are true. Peter is challenging us in the midst of any type of undeserved suffering, suffering that we did not bring on ourselves through sin. These are four reasons why you can have joy and confidence and trust, even in the midst of your pain. That's really why I want us to focus this morning. The first reason that we can respond well in the midst of any kind of painful suffering is because, number one, as we respond well to suffering, it demonstrates our faith. Look again at verse 12. Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Peter is challenging. He uses an interesting word there, testing. He used that back in chapter 1, verse 6. Look back there again, verses 6 and 7. He said, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter, in both passages, he uses this word test or testing. Whenever you see test or testing in Scripture, there's one of two possible meanings there. The word can mean to tempt. To tempt means that, that you, you bring a test into someone's life for the purpose of breaking them, of crushing them, of leading them to failure. You're leading them towards sin. That's what Satan does when he tests us. He's trying to trip us up. He's trying to tempt us towards sin and failure. That's the first meaning of the word. But it can also mean, instead of testing towards temptation, testing towards victory. And that's what it always means when God uses it. God tests us to lead us to victory, tests us to demonstrate our faith and the depth of our character. That's the idea here. Notice in chapter one, he compares it to the testing of gold. You test gold, you, you, you melt it in a fire to prove that it is pure gold, that it is 24 karat gold. That's the idea here. God brings suffering into our lives to, to prove to ourselves and to the world the depth of our faith to demonstrate to the world how much we love Jesus Christ. That's why God allows suffering in, so that we can demonstrate to the world how much we love Jesus. 
Now, when you think about that concept, for me, it reminds me of math tests back in elementary school. When, when I was growing up in elementary, like first, second, third, fourth grade, um, I was a kid who was not at all athletic. I, I couldn't play a sport to save my life. And I was really puny. I was the second smallest kid in the class. Uh, and I didn't know how to talk to girls. And I was really unpopular. And, and I really, in the eyes of my class, I had nothing going for me, except I was really good at math. That was like my one saving grace in elementary school. I could do math well. And so for me, I know this is kind Counterintuitive, but for me, I actually looked most forward to the days in class when we had a math test. Why? Because that was the one and only opportunity I had to look good in class. My test from the teacher was my opportunity to shine, to demonstrate my knowledge in math so that all would see that. And Peter's saying, that's what suffering is in life. I know it's a painful thing, it's a difficult thing, but realize it's also an opportunity. It's your opportunity to demonstrate to yourself and to the world how wonderful Jesus is and how much you love him. That's what suffering is. It's your opportunity to demonstrate to the world the proof of your faith. If life was always easy for us, if life was always exactly what we wanted, if it was always easy, always pleasant, then how would we prove our faith to the world? Yeah, we're walking with Jesus, but it doesn't cost us anything. Life is easy. It would be very difficult to prove how much we love Jesus to the world if life was easy. But when life is difficult, when we suffer, when we're in pain, and yet still we walk with the Lord, still we obey the Lord, that shows to the world how wonderful the Lord is in our eyes, how much we love him and believe in him. So suffering is actually an opportunity to demonstrate your faith. Uh, I saw that play out in one one of my wife's best friends in life, my wife was really close with a woman named Kathy Jackson who passed away some, some years ago. And, and Julie already re- always really looked up to Kathy. And one of the primary reasons was is for the majority of her life, she was fighting a, a very painful, very difficult disease that eventually took her life. Um, and, and Kathy was an amazing woman to begin with, but to see how she, she walked with the Lord in the midst of constant pain and in the midst of knowing that it would only be a, a small amount of time before she died, it was incredible to see her endurance in her faith. In the midst of pain, Kathy shone as one of the brightest lights I've ever seen. I I really, I don't, there's very few people I could look up to like Kathy Jackson because she endured in the midst of incredible pain. Suffering for her became an opportunity to demonstrate her love for Jesus Christ. She continued to walk with the Lord. She did not become bitter. She did not become sorry for herself. She continued to serve others, to love others. What an incredible witness. Her suffering became her opportunity to show all of us the supernatural depth of her love for Jesus Christ. In my eyes, she will always be famous because of that. Suffering is an opportunity to demonstrate our love for Jesus Christ. That's the first reason we can rejoice in the midst of our suffering. Second reason Peter gives us. Because responding well to suffering results in eternal reward. When you suffer, when you're in pain, respond well, continue to walk with the Lord, to trust him, to obey him, because the result will be eternal reward. Look with me uh, in verse 13. Peter says, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. Now you, you kind of lose it in the English here. It's really interesting. He says, to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, when you're in the midst of sufferings, I challenge you to rejoice. And here's the reason why, because if you rejoice in suffering now, then when Jesus returns, you will greatly rejoice. He, 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 he uh, uses grammar that says, basically, you're rejoicing now, you will rejoice with exultation. Literally, when Jesus returns, you will shout with joy. 
If you suffer well now, you will have reason to shout for joy when Jesus returns. What Peter is getting at is that those believers who suffer faithfully now, who suffer well now, will be greatly rewarded when Jesus returns. When he returns, we will, we will exult, we will rejoice because he will come with honor and glory to share with us. Now, that's actually a common biblical theme. We're going to see that throughout scripture. I'll just show you a few places. First of all, look a, a little bit further in the book of First Peter. I'll give you a preview of what we'll be studying in a couple weeks. Chapter 5, look at verse 4. Peter's talking in chapter 5 about elders, about those men who, who oversee the church, uh, who, who really share in a lot of the, the difficulties and sufferings of the church. And he tells them why they should be be faithful in their responsibilities as elders. Verse four, when the chief shepherd, that is Jesus, appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Why should you elders suffer well? Why should you follow the Lord in the midst of difficulty? Because when Jesus returns, he will reward you with the unfading crown of glory. Now, nowhere in scripture does it clearly reveal what exactly this crown is, but in the ancient world, a crown was a symbol of two things. Number one, honor. Somebody who was given a crown was honored in front of the entire world. Everyone saw them as an honored individual. And second, it was a symbol of authority. When you wore a crown, it meant that you were given authority over a place. And what the Bible is telling us is that those elders who who discharge their responsibilities well, they will receive a crown of honor and authority from Jesus when he returns. And that's not just true of elders. That's actually true of all believers who walk faithfully with the Lord, even in the midst of suffering. Jesus said, Matthew 5, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, and here's why. For your reward in heaven is great. If you walk with the Lord faithfully, even in the midst of suffering here, particularly persecution, then Jesus will come with great reward when you see him. Uh, Another example, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul says to Timothy, if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. A little background here, a little context. In 2 Timothy 2, Paul is challenging Timothy to endure suffering well, to fight the good fight, to be a good soldier of Jesus Christ, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of pain. And he says, Timothy, if you endure in the midst of suffering, the result will be that when Jesus returns, you will reign with him. He will welcome you into his authority over the nations. And the second line, don't get tripped up on that. If we deny him, he will also deny us. That's not about eternal life. You got to follow the parallel. It means that if we deny Jesus by the lives we live, if we don't live faithful lives, if we don't suffer well, then when Jesus returns, he will deny us the opportunity to reign with him. We'll still go to heaven, but we won't get to share in his authority over the nations. So in other words, when Jesus comes back, he's going to look at our lives and those of us who have suffered well, who have walked with the Lord, even in the midst of suffering and pain, we will be honored by Jesus Christ. He will share his authority over the nations with us. That point's made explicit by Jesus in Revelation chapter two. Jesus says, he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end to him, I will give authority over the nations. To that believer who endures the suffering of life, the pain of life, and continues to walk with me, to obey me, even when it's difficult, I will share my authority over the earth with him. This is an amazing revelation. It's really an incredible passage. Jesus is saying, in the future, I'm coming back, and I'm going to have authority over over the whole earth. I will rule over earth from one end to the other. And if you're faithful to me now, I will let you share in that authority. You will be a co ruler with me over the earth. 
Now, nowhere in scripture does it clearly describe what that'll look like. A lot of people have asked me that. Blake, what's, what's it gonna look like to rule with Jesus Christ? What exactly is this reward? We don't know. God hasn't revealed it in detail to us, but here is what God has revealed. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. That's interesting. 2 Corinthians, this is written towards the end of Paul's life. For momentary light affliction, think about Paul's life at this point. What was he including when he says momentary light affliction? Well, at this point in Paul's life, he had been whipped within an inch of his life multiple times. He'd been beaten, he'd been stoned, he'd been imprisoned, he'd been shipwrecked, and he was about to lose his head for his faith. And he says, all that, momentary light affliction, it's nothing compared to the glory that awaits me. When I see Jesus and he gives me reward, he rewards my life, that will make all of the pain of this life nothing in comparison. Momentary light affliction is all that this world can do to us in light of the glory we will have when we see Jesus Christ. I think of it this way. When I was in college, I had an internship towards the end of my my engineering degree. Actually, the last summer of my degree. And I went and worked for a company that I planned to get a job at after I graduated. And I kind of had a a guaranteed spot there. I could go work for that company after I graduated. So uh, I took that internship really quite seriously because that internship would decide what position I got with that company when I graduated. How well I did as an intern would decide how much responsibility I got, how much I got paid when I went and worked for them after graduation. And I think Peter's telling us that's kind of how this life works. This life is a very short internship compared to eternity. God wants to reward his people with incredible honor and opportunity and responsibility for all eternity, but he only gives it to those who prove faithful in this test of a life. This is a short life. Even if you're here for a hundred years, it's nothing compared to eternity. And yes, it is painful, but it's just the internship. Will you stay faithful in the midst of the internship so that you can enjoy glory and honor and reward for all eternity? That's the point. Suffer well now. If you do, you prove yourself faithful to the Lord Jesus. And when he stands before you, when he returns, he will reward you with incredible opportunity and honor and glory that you will enjoy for all eternity. That's the next reason why we can be rejoicing in the midst of our suffering. Because as we suffer well, we earn reward from Jesus Christ that we'll enjoy for all eternity. Third reason that Peter gives us. As we respond to suffering in faith and obedience, it draws us nearer to the powerful presence of God. Look at verse 14. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, you are blessed. That's counterintuitive. When we suffer, we don't feel blessed. But Peter, this is actually the second time he's telling us this. In the midst of your suffering, no, that suffering is actually a blessing from God. Why? Because when you respond well to suffering, the power and presence of the Holy Spirit comes to dwell upon you. Now, all who are believers in Jesus Christ, all of us have received the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit already lives in us, and and we can't lose that. The Holy Spirit will live in all believers for all of eternity. So the Spirit lives within us. Peter's point is, yes, the Spirit lives within you, but if you really want to experience the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, guess when that happens? When you're in pain. The point is, the believer who is closest to God is the believer who's suffering. God is closest to us in the darkest times. When we go through suffering, that's when the power of the Holy Spirit comes to rest most heavily upon our lives. 
strengthening us, enabling us, having compassion on us, helping us through the trials of life. That's actually a common theme also in scripture. Jesus himself, he begins the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes. And the first of the Beatitudes says, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who have been humbled in life, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Throughout scripture, God, God identifies himself with those who suffer, with the widow, with the orphan, with the fatherless. He said, those are the people that I am closest to. Those who suffer, those are the people who I am closest with. Those are the people who I come around their lives and I comfort them in the midst of suffering. Paul says a similar thing. Here's one of my favorite verses, my favorite passage. I actually encourage you. Um, this is one that's worth like starring in your Bible or dog leafing the page. This is the most common passage I turn to to comfort another believer who's suffering. This is like great stuff. Really, really powerful passage. Paul says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. I love that last sentence. I think that's the best part of the whole, whole passage. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. The point is, uh, when God allows you to experience suffering in this life, because he is a good God, he always gives you a requisite amount of comfort. He never allows you to experience suffering and withholds his comfort. He always gives you suffering and surrounds it with his comfort. God is always around us in the midst of our pain. When we're in pain, God is closest. He is with us. He is upon us. He is comforting us. He is strengthening us. When you suffer, you can have joy because God is nearest to you in the midst of your pain. It's not the good times of life. It's the hard times of life when we are closest to God. That's the third reason to have joy in the midst of suffering. And the fourth reason, because our suffering in this life is very, very small compared to what God has saved us from. Look again at verses 17 and 18 most challenging verses interpretively of the whole passage for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Let me explain these verses to you. What Peter is saying is that God is going to judge the whole world. God is going to judge all human beings and it's going to come sooner than you think. Jesus is going to return and he's going to judge all people. He's going to evaluate all lives. And that evaluation, that act of judgment will begin with us. The people of God, we're the first to be judged. Now the good news for us is that the judgment of God for believers always ends in salvation. Salvation is difficult, but we are all saved. God brings us into the kingdom of heaven. All believers are saved, but then having evaluated our lives, having judged our lives, God moves on to unbelievers, to those who have not accepted the gospel. They have rejected the gospel. And what is the outcome of judgment for them? Condemnation. They are lost. They spend eternity separated from God. What Peter is trying to help us understand, he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. And he's saying for us who believe in Jesus, if our lives are marked by suffering, if our path, which leads to salvation, if it's marked by suffering, then how much more suffering will those endure who have rejected the gospel, whose path ends in condemnation? He's giving us some perspective. Yeah, our suffering in this life is bad, but guess what? It's nothing compared to what God has saved us from, compared to what those will experience who choose to reject the gospel. Peter's reminding us of the realities of something the Bible calls hell. 
a place where, where people go who, who choose to reject the gospel. He wants us to understand, yeah, this life, it's painful for us, but it's nothing compared to the pain and suffering that they will face because they've rejected the gospel. So let's take a moment and let's, let's review what the Bible has to say about this really difficult subject, this really horrible place called hell. What do we learn? Well, first of all, scripture tells us very clearly that hell was not created for human beings. Matthew 25, 41, Jesus says, then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Eternal fire, it wasn't made for human beings, it was made for Satan and his demonic forces, those angels who freely chose to rebel against God. God created a place for them to go, that is hell. He never intended it for human beings. Second, scripture tells us, God doesn't desire any human being to go to hell. 1 Timothy 2, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. No one goes to hell because God predestines them for it. No one goes to hell because God wants them in hell. No, they, they, they don't go to hell for that reason. God doesn't desire any human being to go to hell. Here's why they go to hell. First, or 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 10. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. This passage is really significant. It teaches us a few things about hell. First of all, it tells us people go to hell because they've chosen to reject the gospel. It's not because God doesn't like them. It's not because God hasn't predestined them. It's because they have chosen to reject whatever they know about God. That's why they end up in hell. Second, it tells us that hell is a place of perfect justice. They receive exactly the just penalty for their sins. Everything that comes upon them in hell, that's exactly what they deserve. God is absolutely infinitely fair to them. That's hell, the fairness of God in justice. Finally, it tells us it's a place of eternal destruction, a place of of unending fire, a place of unending punishment. You look at the passages that the Bible has about hell. It is a horrible place, a place where fire is never quenched, a place where they suffer punishment, conscious punishment for their sins for all eternity. It's a horrible place. This is actually my least favorite thing to talk about in, in all of scripture. This is my least favorite thing to include in a sermon. I hate talking about the doctrine of hell because it, it is so horrible. It turns my stomach to think about it. But it's so important for us to look at these passages. It's so important for us to remember the fate of those who reject the gospel. Why? Because looking at these passages, it does two things for us. First of all, it grows us in thankfulness to God. Thank God he saved us from this place because this is what we deserve. God didn't create hell for us. He doesn't want us to go to hell. We would all be freely choosing to go to hell if it wasn't for Jesus Christ. Thank God that he sent his son to die for us and rise from the dead so that we could be delivered from the just penalty of our sins, so that we could be delivered from the eternal punishment of hell. So we study these passages because they make us thankful people. And second, we study these passages because they make us compassionate people. When I remember the realities of hell, it makes me compassionate towards those who don't know Jesus Christ. When I look at my neighbor who doesn't know Christ, when I, when I see these passages, they make me think, man, I desperately want to share the gospel with you. I don't want you to go to this place. We study these passages because it makes us merciful towards those who don't know Jesus. It motivates us to go out and share our faith. When you study these passages about hell, it should move you to have compassion upon those who don't know Jesus Christ. 
These passages, they give us a little bit of, of perspective on life. Yeah, this life is painful, but we need to remember something. We need to remember that in the midst of the pain of this life, um, for those who know Jesus, who believe the gospel, this painful life is the closest we'll ever get to hell. We die and things just get better. But for those who've rejected the gospel, this painful life, this is as close as they're ever going to get to heaven. This is the best they're ever going to get it. Let me repeat that. For those who know Jesus, who've heard and believed the gospel, this painful life is as close as we'll ever get to hell. For those who reject the gospel, who reject Jesus Christ, this life is as close as they'll ever get to heaven. We need to remember that perspective. We need to remember that perspective because it moves us in compassion to share our faith. How can I not share the gospel with my neighbor? How can I not do that? The gospel is the only hope to save him from this place. How can I not share the gospel with my coworker? How can I not have compassion upon them? When we see the realities of hell as revealed in scripture, it should move us in compassion to share the gospel. Don't be ashamed of being a Christian. Go out there and be bold in your witness for Jesus Christ because the news that you have, the news that Jesus died for sin and rose from the dead, that is the only news, the only message that can save your neighbors and coworkers and unbelieving family from this place. It's interesting. I came across a video blog this week from a guy named Penn Gillette. He's the, the pin of Penn and Teller, the comedian group. He's the guy who talks. He's the bigger guy. Um, he's uh, an avowed atheist, been an atheist for a long time, very hostile towards religion. And, and he shares this story about after, after a comedy routine, after a, a night, um, he, he's, he's hanging out afterwards and this guy comes up to him, a, a guy who, who's a little bit nervous, but he comes up to him and, and he's really nice. Uh, the, the guy looks him in the eye and he says nice things about Penn and he, he compliments him for the show. And he says, you know, I, I really like the things that you said. And, and anyways, I, you know, I, I care about you and, and I wanted to give you this. And he hands him a Bible. Okay, so, so it's, a, it's a believer handing a Bible to one of the most avowed atheists, outspoken atheists in the country. How's Penn going to respond to that? Well, you'd expect him to be hostile, to laugh at the guy, throw the Bible back at him. But no, actually, actually he's really, really thankful. And so he does this video blog and on the video blog, he just compliments this guy like crazy. It's like, he, here's a guy, this is incredible. Here's a guy who gave me a Bible. I'm so thankful for that. And here's why. Here's a quote from the video blog. Here's what he says of this guy. If you believe, and remember, these are the words of an atheist, an avowed atheist. He's saying, if you believe there is a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much must you have to hate somebody to believe that eternal life is possible and not tell them that? Those are the words of an atheist. He's saying, I don't, I don't hate the guy who gave me the Bible. I respect him. I don't share his beliefs, but I respect him because how much must you have to hate a person to believe that eternal life is possible and not share them to them the way? Not tell them how to have eternal life. We believe that eternal life is possible and we believe that if you don't hear the gospel, you end up in a horrible place like hell. How much must we have to hate people to not share that news with them? Peter wants us to understand in the midst of our sufferings, we need to have some perspective. We need to realize as painful as this life is, it's nothing compared to what God has delivered us from through his son, Jesus Christ. We need to remember the suffering that, that is coming in the future. As horrible a subject as hell is, we need to keep it in our minds so that we understand how important it is to share the gospel, to get out there and share the good news that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. This morning, I want us to close with communion. We have the privilege of celebrating communion and the guys can head to the back to get communion ready for us. And I want to correct something that I said at the beginning of this sermon. 
Beginning of the sermon, I said that for all human beings, suffering is inescapable. Well, that's true of everybody except one person. It's actually one person for whom suffering was escapable. That's Jesus Christ. He's the creator. He created this world to be good, to be wonderful, to be pleasing to us. We blew it. We sinned. We chose to bring sin and death and suffering into the world. And Jesus, who is God, he could have simply stayed in heaven and never touched suffering. He could have simply stayed in the beauty and bliss of heaven and let us experience the just penalty of our sins, but he didn't do that. In love, he clothed himself in the flesh of humanity and he came and he entered into the suffering and pain of this world. I don't know if you guys realize what an incredible thing Jesus did. He could have freely chosen to escape pain and suffering. One human being who ever had that choice and yet in love for us, he freely chose to suffer, to be in pain, to take our sins upon himself, to be mocked and abused, whipped and finally crucified. For us. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That Jesus, who is God, who deserved nothing but honor and reward and glory, he freely chose to come to earth and suffer and die in our place so that we might be saved. And then he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death once and for all. And all those who trust in the death of Jesus will be saved. We'll spend eternity with God. That's the good news that we celebrate in communion. Communion is our opportunity to thank God for sending his son Jesus to die for our sins and rise from the dead. So as the men prepare to pass communion, I'm gonna ask you guys, everyone here who is trusted in Jesus, you're welcome to take communion with us. I'd ask you during this time as Josh plays, use this opportunity to spend some time going before the Lord in thanksgiving. Just spend some time reflecting on what God has delivered you from at the cost of his son's own life. Just spend some time thanking God for sending Jesus. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Father, how we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. Thank you for sending him to die for our sins and rise from the dead. Thank you for your gift of salvation, Lord, we pray. Now, if you'll stand, we're going to close by singing together once again. Father, we lift up anyone in this room who has not yet trusted in Jesus as their Savior. We pray, Lord, that you might open their eyes to understand that your own Son, Jesus Christ, took all of their sins upon himself and died in their place to pay the penalty for sin. And then, having died for their sins, he rose from the dead victorious once and for all over sin and death. 
please, Lord, help them not to try to work their way to you, not to try to earn salvation, Lord, but to simply trust in the payment of Jesus Christ, to trust in Jesus' death and resurrection as payment for their sins. We pray that they would find forgiveness in him today. We pray for all of us who, who have believed that message. We pray, Lord, that we would follow Jesus Christ faithfully that we would be Christians, that we would be followers of Jesus Christ, little Christs on this earth, living like he lived, being faithful to you even in the midst of suffering and pain. Lord, let our lives glorify and honor you. Strengthen us in the power and presence of your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would go before us this week and help us to walk faithfully with you. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great Thanksgiving.